Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today we're talking about bipeds, bipedalism. Uh, and this is a this is a topic that I, w- I, I was just kind of rattling around in my brain the other day. Uh, because you, for most of us, walking is just kind of every day, right? You run a little bit. Uh, maybe you hop a little bit. It's, of course, evolved multiple times in mammals. You have macropods, kangaroo rats and mice, spring hare, hopping mice, pangolins, and, of course, hominid apes, uh, much, uh, which includes ourselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes scientists uh, you know, make the distinction between facultative and obligate bipeds, though this isn't a, a standard uh, distinction. Suffice to say, there are creatures such as the human, flightless birds, and uh, to draw on a prehistoric example, the T-Rex, that have no real alternative to bipedal movement. I mean, I can crab walk around. Yeah, wouldn't that? If, if you're crab walking, you're still bipedal, unless you can grow some crab legs. It depends which version of the crab walk are you talking. Are you talking about where you're— I'm talking where, I, you know, you lean back and you go on all fours oh, with yes, your belly yes. up in the air. Because there's also the Zoidberg walk, where you walk from side <laughs> to side <laughs> oh, in a okay. squat. That's a good one, but that's not that, what I yeah, meant. Yeah, that would just be bipedal. Zoidberg is a biped. No, 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 no. I meant the uh, the exorcist down the stairs walk. Oh, yes, yes. Okay. Well, that yeah, that would count. But uh, I— Fully grant you, I probably wouldn't get around very quickly doing that all the time. (laughs) Other creatures, of course, are capable of bipedal locomotion, but only employ it under certain circumstances. Like, for instance, a lemur dancing, you know, sort of prancing sideways across a clearing between two trees. A giant ground sloth uh, in in olden days rising up to reach higher branches. Or, Or one of my favorites, a cat standing on its hind legs to better view prey or something of interest. This is always a, a creepy, weird sight if you're lucky enough to witness it. Oh, but it, it also can be very cute. Yes. When dogs stand on two legs to, to get up there closer to the treat that they want. Oh, yeah. It's adorable. It's Yeah. When dogs do it, it's adorable. When cats do it, it is uns- it's a little unsettling. Right. Like they've suddenly become tiny people, like they've been people all along. Um, or that's my read on it. Now, when it comes to the hominins, uh, which again includes humans, the oldest evidence of bipedal movement in a hominin species was probably six million years ago. This would have been the Salanthropus. And there's some dispute over this. But at any rate, we were mostly bipedal by, say, four million years ago. Mm-hmm. We had a curved spine by 2.5 million years ago. Uh, and it altered our hip support by 1.95 million years ago. And we were fully bipedal by the time of Homo erectus, with signature pelvis and thigh bones evident in the fossil record. The legs lengthened over time, allowing for longer strides, everything that would enable the Ministry of Silly Walks to do its thing. (laughs) Yeah. Now, some of what we know about uh, the posture and gait of our ancient ancestors and their close relatives has to be inferred indirectly. I mean, you can get a pretty good idea from like the shapes of bones and stuff. That'll tell you a lot. There's other, there's other evidence that's very direct. A great piece of early direct evidence for bipedality is the uh, fossil formation known as the Laetoli footprints. So, Robert, have you, have you seen what these look like? I think I have. Yeah. Let's refresh everybody. Very cool. In, in 1976, there was a team working with the paleontologist Mary Leakey, mm-hmm. and they discovered a collection of fossilized am, animal tracks in Laetoli, Tanzania, which is south of the Olduvai Gorge. And the tracks were preserved in what had been a soft bed of volcanic ash about 3.6 million years ago or 
and it had hardened and been preserved for us to discover in the 20th century. And then, so after these tracks were initially discovered in 1978, Paul Abel, a colleague of Leakey's, discovered that the formation also contained a 27-meter or about 88-foot-long trail of ancient hominin footprints in addition to the other animal footprints probably made by Australopithecus afarensis, the species to which Lucy belonged. And there were about 70 hominin footprints at all in all in this formation. And so the thing about these footprints is they're quite clearly bipedal. You know, you're not seeing four-legged movement. It, somebody was just walking on two feet mm-hmm. through this volcanic ash. Uh, the prints I've read are spaced close together, meaning a short stride might mean short legs. And the prints also show a big toe in line with the foot rather than opposed to the foot as you see in arboreal apes. So like, you know, your – Human big toes go straight out. The arboreal apes have more kind of a toe thumb, like a big toe thumb uh, that they use to climb trees and grab hold of stuff. And also their footfalls apparently went heel toe just like ours tend to. Mm-hmm. So by about 3.6 million years ago, we, we've got direct evidence that our ancestors and their close relatives were walking on two feet. Uh, and I also can't help but mention I've read supposedly there's this story of how the prints were discovered because one of Leakey's colleagues, a paleoanthropologist named Andrew Hill, uh, stumbled across the fossil formation when he and another colleague were running around throwing elephant poop at each other. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you got to keep it lighthearted on the dig, right? So um, – like you said, we we know all of this based on mostly fossil remains, and and by by this you know we're looking at the bones of our ancestors and observing what the gradual shift to bipedalism did to us, and it certainly certainly came at a cost. Yeah. Now to be sure, it was it was worth it. I guess. I mean, it made it easier for us to pick up fruits and pick up pick from low lying branches. It gave us free hands for carrying food and and also very importantly carrying tools carrying our young as well. It allowed us to rise up and appear larger and more fearsome to our enemies, our many enemies of the wild. This is something that I think we often don't think about, but uh, unless you're being instructed on how to react to a bear uh, in the in the wild, mm-hmm. you know, they say make yourself as big as possible. Right. And certainly there are other animals that do just the same thing. But uh, that's one of the strengths of being able to at least rise up on two feet. Yeah. Now, you can't know this for sure, but I, I tend to think – that bipedalism is a sort of necessary precursor to advanced tool-using intelligence. I mean, you see some use of tools in quadrupedal apes, mm-hmm. but the fact that the fact that you're walking on two feet gives you free hands, and having free hands, it seems like suddenly you've got much more incentive to be using them for all kinds of stuff. Well, it's interesting when you think about the animals that do display some form of tool use. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly you have the the apes, uh, which are going to more or less align with the human experience of tool use. But then, mm-hmm. of course, you have like the corvids mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and a few other birds that uh, that also use tools. Now, obviously, they are engaging in bipedal uh, ground movement. Mm-hmm. Their wings are, are tucked away. Uh, but it's perhaps – I mean, it's a slightly different situation with birds because those wings do have a purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've just specialized their uh, their their beak functionality and and have learned how to use tools with that. Yeah, the same is true of dolphins. You know, they're using uh, when they engage in tool use, they're using their snout. Um, octopi, slightly different situation. <laughs> they have a uh, they have they have a wide variety of limbs and are not necessarily going to become <laughs> bipedal anytime soon. 
So any way you shake it, though, back to the human scenario, it, it helped us expand our range. It, it, it definitely played a part in our, our ascension, our dominance, uh, certainly our ability to invent things and expand. But we also paid a price. We had to distribute all of our weights on two limbs, resulting in all sorts of painful experiences, such as lower back pain, slipped discs, arthritis in the, the lower body, fallen arches. Our spines are ultimately just kind of weird. Uh, we evolved wider hips and stronger knees to kind of cope with it to a certain extent. But this is the reason that roughly 80% of adult humans will experience back pain in their lives. I would say one of the biggest anatomical drawbacks is that we can make finger guns at each other. I, I mean, that that is a true blow to the species. <laughs> You mean you mean the beneficial kind, or like kids playing cowboys and Indians, or whatever on the playground? No, the like the like catch you later, bro. Oh, okay. So it also it also affected the way that we give birth, and uh, and this is a, a I have to say this is a topic that we could easily have devoted an entire episode to. There's a lot of scholarship and debate on exactly how the modern human birthing scenario pans out towards prehistoric examples. Mm -hmm. But the move toward the bipedal form changed our skeletons. This affected the pelvis. Most primates have a pretty straight birth canal, but uh, hominins soon boasted a narrow, distorted kind of funhouse tube of a birth canal. The offspring had to twist and turn in order to pass through. This was true of our, our ancestors. Uh, but our bodies continued to evolve. We became taller. We grew larger brains. That mean, meant bigger-brained babies having to make it through that twisting tunnel. Everything became tighter. Childbirth uh, became a potentially more dangerous affair uh, because it, it also means giving birth to a child at an earlier stage of its development in order to actually break it free from the confines of our bipedally twisted bodies. Now, again, there's a lot more to this. Scientists have gone back and forth on the so-called uh, obstetric dilemma, but bipedal evolution certainly changed things. Yeah. All right. I think we should take a quick break and we'll be right back to discuss why bipedalism evolved in humans. All right. We're back. Uh, so this is a big question because certainly we can point to all of these, the, like the pros and all of the cons, but like what is the driving force, right? Right. Uh, what caused our, our ancient uh, hominin ancestors to go on two legs primarily? Why did our ancestors become bipedal? And this is an ongoing debate. Uh, we know at some point we transitioned from mostly four-footed gait to a mostly two-footed gait, but why did it happen and what type of pressure selected for this? So first of all, when answering questions like this, it's often hard to be certain, right? You know, we only have the evidence we can find. Fossil evidence helps, but it's hard to like run new experiments to test this. We, you know, we only have the fossil finds we have and can only draw the conclusions we can draw from them. And there have been all kinds of answers over the years. So for a long time, consensus seemed to be that bipedalism was an adaptation to a change in our primary habitat, as our ancestors moved down out of the trees into a flat grassland, perhaps driven by changing climate, like changing climate killed off forests and left these, you know, savannas with tall grasses in their place, or these creatures just moved down into the savannas to follow food sources or something. In this case, uh, these hominins needed to stand up to see over the tall grass. 
And this explanation is not still favored. This has fallen out of favor among experts. And one reason is that climate history analysis and physical fossil evidence indicate that we were becoming bipedal at the same time that we were still adapted to climbing and living in trees. And I think there are multiple lines of evidence supporting this. It, it appears that at some point our ancestors were both like living in forests and climbing trees, but also having skeletons that's uh, supported bipedal walking gait. Also, it's worth pointing out that plenty of other animals that occupy areas with tall grasses, tall grasslands, do just fine staying on all fours, right? Mm -hmm. They don't need to stand up to see over the grass uh, in order to survive. Like grassland baboons today are still quadrupedal. So that used to be what people thought, but that is not, no longer the, the main hypothesis. So another theory that is popular with the public but not with scientists in the relevant fields is the much, uh, much <laughs> beloved aquatic ape theory. Oh, yes. We talked about this um, uh, last year. Yeah, in our aquatic humanoids episode. Mm -hmm. uh, we concluded that there's not really any good evidence for this. There's no direct fossil evidence for it whatsoever. And the indirect reasoning that causes people to think that there's evidence for this is uh, it's just not very good. But we should mention it because this is bound to come up whenever people address bipedality right. and its origins. Uh, I think it's just because it's fun to imagine maybe and because it's unconventional that makes it more interesting to people. Basically, it says that the explanation for the main phenotypic variations between us and our closest ape relatives is that our direct ancestors briefly evolved to become water-dwelling primates, mm -hmm. so sort of like fishmen, <laughs> and, uh, and then moved back to dry land after that. And under this theory, bipedality evolves because we need to keep our heads above water when we're wading around in search of shellfish for food. Right. It would be kind of like the idea that, that we became bipedal because we didn't want to get our T-shirts wet. You know? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's not that bad, but yeah. So this was first proposed by Alistair Hardy, and it was mainly developed by somebody named Elaine Morgan. And in short, uh, Morgan says, look, we're the only mammal that consistently walks on two legs, uh, but some four-legged animals can occasionally stand up on two legs. And when do our closest ape relatives walk on two legs? Well, she claims there's only one circumstance when they always walk on two legs, and that's when they're wading in water. I, I see some pretty clear evidence running counter to this assertion just in publicly available video. Like, Primates, you, you look this up, primates sometimes stand up on two legs for all kinds of reasons, while carrying objects and moving around with them during dominance displays to reach something. Like they don't – and they also on top of that don't always stand up when wading in water. I found video of gorillas wading around in water and they tend to stay on all fours. So if the classic explanation about seeing over the grass is probably wrong and we don't put any stock in the aquatic ape, what is the real explanation? Of course, we still don't know, but there are a lot of competing theories. Maybe there was a selection pressure on having free hands. So maybe some of our ancestors began carrying or throwing things. And for, for some reason, this got started and then there was a great survival or reproduction advantage for the ones that did this more and more of the time. So being able – this comes back to the examples of being able to carry one's young, being able to carry food that you've gathered or being able to carry a tool or a weapon. 
say, a nice, uh, you know, jawbone for smacking the other uh, ape creatures around. Well, I, I mean, I, a big one I've seen suggested actually is throwing. Mm-hmm. Like if if we evolved somehow a throwing hunting strategy where you would throw objects, mm-hmm. that this could have spurred bipedality or some bridge to it. Mm. Another thing I was reading about in a BBC article is that recent research has suggested that perhaps partial bipedality helped these hominins adapt to rocky, uneven terrain in geologically active areas. Essentially, that our ancestors were not only tree climbers but rock climbers and this encouraged them to take on some traits that bridge the gap to bipedalism. Interesting. Another is, I guess, sort of the least uh, the the least interesting as an idea, but has seems to have a lot going for it. And it's simply that a certain kind of bipedalism in tree dwelling life became useful, as it is in many orangutans today. Like mm-hmm. you can look at orangutans living in the trees that walk around on two feet. Like they'll reach up and grab branches with their arms over their heads while walking around on other branches with two feet. Yeah, it's just a great way to anchor yourself between a lower and upper branch. So there are a lot of competing theories. I mean, I know there are other ones we didn't even cover here, but this is, this is an unsolved question. We still don't know the answer. Now, any way you shake it, we were not the first bipeds. No. Not, not by a long not shot. Not even close. Uh, I already mentioned the T-Rex, you know, that, that fam- the famous Cretaceous period carnivore. Cretaceous period, of course, spanned 145 million years ago to 66 million years ago. And this, again, is just an animal that could scarcely be more of a biped, you know, with those tiny little arms. And, of course, he, he or she is just one of the many theropods that roamed the prehistoric Earth. And in many cases, not, not, not just uh, roamed it, but ran after their prey, uh, running a key advantage of their bipedal morphology. But even they, it seems, were not the first. Um, there is a 290-million-year-old fossil of a species that is dubbed Udibamus cursorus. This is a, a creature that was very lizard-like, uh, it seems, in, in its uh, probable appearance. Had short forelimbs, relatively long tail, and, high, and uh, also relatively long hind limbs. So th- these are kind of the, the hallmarks of a, of a bipedal creature. Uh, but the other curious thing about it is that it seems to have been an herbivore rather than a meat-eater like the theropods. Hmm. Therefore, it probably, uh, paleontologists think it probably depended on bipedal running to flee from quadrupedal danger. Okay. And on the subject of uh, dinosaurs and quadrupedal and bipedal arrangement, I found a 2005 article in Astrobiology magazine that uh, brings up uh, a species that is dubbed uh, Massospondylus. And this is a prosauropod. Hmm. Now, sauropods, as everyone remember, the, you know, they're the, the giant uh, Diplodocus, uh, Brachiosaurus-style kind of creatures, you know, big, enormous quadrupeds, just enormous, just ponderous creatures. The prosauropods, uh, unlike the, their descendants, they could rise up on their hind legs and go after food bipedally. So back in 2005, University of Toronto at... Uh, Mississauga, uh, this UTM biology professor, Robert Rice, he looked at an embryo of one of these massospondylus uh, uh, creatures, and he found you know, the thing was that it looked like a four-legged sauropod. Hmm. So he hypothesized that it would have grown into a full bipedal form as it matured. Uh, this is uh, what he told Astro- Astrobiology magazine, quote, because the embryo of massospondylus looks like a tiny sauropod 
with massive limbs and a quadrupedal gait, we proposed in our paper that the sauropod's gait probably evolved through a phenomenon called uh, pedomorphosis, the retention of embryonic and juvenile features in the adult. Mm. So this is interesting because we're talking about a creature that potentially adapted bipedal, uh, the bipedal gait, but then left it behind. Pedomorphosis, by the way, it's, it's something we see today in various amphibian species. species. But for, for these sauropods, yeah, for the true sauropods, it would mean that they were essentially man babies of the prehistoric world. Like they simply no longer had to grow up. Like they were the biggest forest-eating dumpsters on the planet. And therefore, they, they really didn't have to augment their more or less larval form anymore. You know, I have often wondered something. When looking at bipedal theropod dinosaurs like the T-Rex, just look at that powerful lower body and then the tiny little baby arms out front. If this dinosaur fell down or even just, you know, went to have a little lie down in the meadow, Mm -hmm. how did it get back up? I'm not saying it would be impossible. It just seems very awkward. Of course, we're bipedal and we can get up from the ground, but we have long arms and strong upper bodies to help us. Try lying down on the ground and then getting up without using your arms at all. You can probably do it, but it's not so easy, is it? And the T-Rex probably has an even lower relative center of mass than you. So what's going on? Like, was it this much of a struggle for the T-Rex every time it had to get up from the ground? That's a great question. Well, I've been wondering this for a while. I finally looked it up. There's actually a really good explainer on this in Scientific American provided by the paleontologist Gregory M. Erickson of Florida State University. And so here's what Erickson says. First of all, there has long been a dispute over exactly what the T-Rex's tiny forelimbs were for. Uh, maybe, you know, one idea says maybe they're just vestigial, meaning they're actually not good for much of anything at all, and they only existed in diminished form because the Rex hadn't fully lost them yet. And then the next idea says, well, maybe they're grasping arms used in copulation. Mm -hmm. And then the next idea says, maybe there's some sort of meat hook for feeding chunks of flesh into the mouth, though this hypothesis was beaten down when it became clear that the arms of a T-Rex could not reach its mouth. Yeah, this is one of those things that when we went to the the, the, the museum in Chicago, the Field Museum, that became yeah. obvious. You when you go up to the arm, uh, the fossil uh, bones of a T Rex's arm, they are the size of my arm, but the T Rex is the size of like a two story house, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, clearly this is a, a shrunken limb. Exactly, uh, but another hypothesis is that the baby arms were useful exactly for helping the T-Rex get back up when it was lying on the ground. So in the year 1970, the British paleontologist Barney Newman speculated that maybe the arms could help the T-Rex do a, do a thing kind of like a push-up. It would be a push-up motion where, the, where it would help the Rex keep from sliding forward along the ground as it tried to raise its body to a standing position. Just imagine trying to rise without anything to brace you, like lie flat on your stomach and then try to push yourself up to standing using your legs alone. You might be able to do it, but it's not easy. It's a lot easier if you can use your arms. Right. And it requires a fair amount of sort of coiling and slithering around for mm-hmm. uh, for most people, I think. And it's, it's easier to imagine that kind of movement in our bodies as opposed to the T-Rex. Yes. So uh, Erickson says, you know, now we know more about the biomechanics of the T-Rex than we did back when these ideas were hypothesized. So, of course, number one, as we mentioned, the arms can't reach the mouth. The mouth so the meat hook theory, that's dead. 
One thing we have learned is that T-Rex arms were often broken during life as opposed to in an injury that immediately caused death. And this tells us some interesting things. First of all, it tells us that the arms were probably kind of bad at whatever the Rexes were using them for. Mm -hmm. And number two, they were not absolutely necessary for survival. The fact that we could have like examples of them having healed or not immediately killed the Rex means that a Rex could break an arm and survive for at least a month afterward. Mm. If an animal in the wild breaks a survival essential limb, that I mean, that animal is generally pretty much done for. Right. Right, like a cheetah breaking a leg, etc. It's 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 done. And this suggests four limbs that were not survival essential. Also, though the Rex arms would have been strong by our standards, like he says they could probably curl 400 pounds, they would not have had strong enough bone structure in the wrists to lift what he calls large mechanical loads, and that would include the Rex's own body. So this means Newman's uh, push-up hypothesis is probably wrong, right, that the T-Rex did a push-up in order to get up from the ground. So how did they get up once they were lying down? Well, Erickson suggests looking to birds who get up without the aid of forelimbs. And apparently what they do is they simply tuck their legs directly underneath their center of gravity and then push straight up. Actually, probably sort of the exact same thing you would do if you tried to stand up from the ground without using your arms. You try to gather your legs under you and then push up, right? Yeah, exactly. But also, theropod dinosaurs with tiny arms, like the T-Rex, would have had the aid of their tails to help gain additional leverage or bracing against the ground. So the way I'm imagining this, I could be wrong, but it's the same way you would brace your hands against the ground in front of you while extending your legs to stand up. Imagine a T-Rex maybe being able to brace its tail against the ground behind it while pushing up with its legs, a sort of backward standing. Hmm. You know, all of this, I think it goes, it's just another reminder that the T-Rex, one of the most famous dinosaurs, if not the most famous dinosaur, the, the, the specimen out there, and also one that we, we know a fair amount about. There are a number of, um, of fossils that have been found, and yet there are, uh, there's, a, there's so much that we do not know about the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things about it that we will, we will never know unless we get that uh, time machine to go back and start hunting them. Or, or we somehow uh, bring them back to life with the Jurassic Park scenario. I propose a preemptive ban on dinosaur hunting. Before we have any time machines, we've got to get the regulations in place. That's right. We've got to think ahead of our technology. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. All right. We're back. All right. So one of the big questions I had, too, in all of this is, all right, we, we've looked at bipeds in prehistoric times. We look at, at the bipedal world around us. Uh, that the humans have built. Uh, we're always trying to figure out what's going on or what could be going on on other worlds, what other kinds of life have evolved, uh, are evolving, or will evolve in the future. So, Assuming the entire universe isn't dead. Right. Other than us, which, you know, might be. Right. So um, what's the deal? Would, would we find legged creatures on other worlds? And if we did, would we find bipedal creatures? We can certainly imagine extraterrestrial life that doesn't depend on legged locomotion, but intelligent life, life capable of achieving technology uh, along the same lines as the, the human model. You know, we've, we've gone into this a bit in the past discussing the notion of, say, a hypothetical aquatic species and what sort of technology they might be able to develop. Uh, as techno- technology entails the mani- manipulation of matter, one would need some sort of limbs of manipulation. Mm-hmm. 
Now, terrestrial nature provides us with other forms of manipulation beyond uh, uh, you know, our hands and our arms. There are the arms and tentacles of cephalopods. Uh, one could maybe turn to pseudopods and, uh, and other organisms. Those are not used for tool use, but if we're just imagining some sort of a, an organism manipulating things, I think pseudopods are on the table. Uh, I just had a crazy idea. What about a magnetic organism? Like hmm. it's got like a skin surface that can manipulate things by changing uh, magnetic attraction. Or, or yeah, or it's picked up. I mean, there are animals in the natural world that uh, that utilize magnetism to a certain extent, right? So yeah. maybe there's something there. Um, but when we try and think of tool users that engage in tool use uh, without engaging in bipedal movement, well, you know, a few varieties uh, of, of octopus come to mind. Uh, we can think of dolphins. Uh, and we, of course, do see a lot of bipedal use in apes and birds. But w- then we have uh, these animals that engage in tool use via their mouth parts or in the case of elephants with their trunks. Mm-hmm. You know, Ian M. Banks, uh, the sci-fi uh, writer, he actually explored this idea uh, in his excellent novel, Surface Detail. There are these uh, creatures called the uh, the pav- pavulians, and they are, they're like an elephant-like quadrupedal species, but they have a pair of trunks that they use for tool use and computer interface in the front. Mm. Now, I was looking around for, uh, for any writings on this subject, and I ran across uh, this uh, paper, Some Engineering Considerations on the Controversial Issue of Humanoids by Giancarlo Ginta uh, from the Department of Mechanics, and uh, this is uh, from the Politecnico di Torino. And this was collected in Cellular Origin, Life in Extreme Habitats and Astrobiology 2015. And uh, uh, Ginta actually lays out much of what I said concerning uh, possible mobility methods uh, and more in a very succinct way. He writes, quote, mobility of a living being is strictly linked with how it gets its food and energy. Autotrophic beings may not need any sort of mobility, while uh, heterotrophic ones, and particularly predators, usually need to move to obtain food. Large animals either are supported on a solid surface, float in a fluid under the effect of hydrostatic forces, or fly using aerodynamic forces. Very small beings may use other supporting mechanisms, like surface tension, molecular interactions, etc. Since it is likely that an intelligent being has a minimum size larger than allowing to, uh, to use these mechanisms, they will not be considered. Other solutions, like magnetic levitation or jets, are conceivable but are quite hypothetical and will not be considered. Okay. And uh, he goes on to point out that most animals on solid surface, surfaces do have legs and that evolution on our planet, at least, is characterized by a gradual reduction in the number of legs. Hmm. Uh, he continues, quote, In general, the larger is the animal and the lower is the gravity of the planet, the easier it is to remain in equilibrium on a small number of legs, hmm. in the sense that the response of the nervous system to avoid falling down may be less quick. From this point of view, low gravity uh, simplifies all operations related to motion. They go on to point out that the speed is important. The speed, of course, is important for, for survival and, uh, and is an important factor in natural selection. Uh, and we can see this reflected in our dinosaur examples, right, our prehistoric uh, creature examples, because uh, something like the T-Rex is running quickly to catch prey, mm-hmm. as are its theropod um, um, uh, kin. And then that earlier example, the kind of uh, weird lizard herbivore, that would have uh, conceivably been running to escape from predators. Seems another example where uh, so much in evolution ends up having to do with speed. Yeah. Like, you know, when we talked about what co- the ideas behind what caused the Cambrian explosion, you know, this is another big 
open question in uh, in paleontology and, and the history of biology and evolution. Uh, and one of the ideas there is that maybe suddenly the introduction of predation into the mm. food chain drove an explosion in body plan adaptation because suddenly things needed to protect themselves and move quickly in order to survive or in order to – well, it still be in order to survive – to catch or evade predation. Indeed. So uh, Ginta continues and says that all of this uh, means there will be, quote, a strong incentive to shift from walking, a sequel of static equilibrium positions, to running, which includes positions in which static equilibrium is not guaranteed. Large animals, possibly with a smaller number of legs, may have then an advantage, and bipeds are a very good configuration for beings having an adequate control system. Uh, This is interesting. So he's pointing out how... One of the features of running is that, that like, you, you can be off balance while you're running because it's the same way, like, a bicycle works. You know, yeah. a bicycle works because you be, by maintaining speed, you could do this thing that you couldn't stay balanced at a lower speed. Yeah, I and mean, if you're the T-Rex, ideally, that, uh, that, uh, that herbivore is going to break your fall and you're going to do it <laughs> with mouth wide open, right? Uh, so uh, they also touch on the fact that, that – Tool use and manipulation amounts to a shortcut in evolution. Uh, quote, objects that increase the potentialities of its body working like prostheses. Uh, why, why slowly augment your body over the course of, you know, long stretches of time when you can do something like this within a lifetime via tool use? Yeah. So they conclude that such an alien, if, if we're trying to imagine an alien emerging in another world, that it would need to have some sort of, um, of locomotion and some sort of manipulation organs. Quote, the latter being best derived from locomotion organs like legs. The humanoid layout with two arms and two legs seems to be optimal. This is an interesting point. Yeah, I, I, would, I would have maybe said, okay, uh, uh, who knows how many legs mm-hmm. an alien we encounter might have. But if it's moving around on land, uh, I think this is some pretty solid reasoning. There tends to be evolution toward fewer numbers of legs over time for, to increase speed and that uh, this can free up other limbs for tool use, which seems to be an important part of tool-using intelligence. Like, you you wouldn't need tool-using intelligence if you didn't have hands to use tools with. Right. Yeah, it's it, it, it's, it's an interesting paper. I'm sure there's some, there some uh, uh, astrobiologists and biologists that might take, evolutionary biologists that may take issue with this. But, uh, but I, I, think, I think the author makes a... Uh, an interesting argument here. And it also, as much as I love multi-legged aliens in my sci-fi, it also gives me a little support for visions of bipedal aliens being the the dominant uh, uh, form in so many different science fiction visions. Now, this also makes me question what unexamined assumptions are we bringing on board that could be clouding our vision right here? We're we're thinking, okay, I'm just trying to universalize about like the physics of planets and the principles of evolution and not be, you know, earth chauvinist. Mm -hmm. But uh, but I bet there are ways that that we're somehow being earth chauvinist that we're not noticing. Right. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about tails. I can easily imagine uh, some sort of an alien creature with a prehensile tail. Mm -hmm. Um, 
or who knows, some other prehensile uh, uh, bit of their anatomy that they're uh, able to use for tool use and manipulation. Well, to bring it back to the T-Rexes, I, I think we did mention this, but despite the fact that we don't have tails, tails often form an extremely important part of bipedal locomotion. Mm -hmm. the, the tails are there to counter as a counterweight for the front of the body. If you've only got two legs and you're like a T-Rex, you're leaning forward. You know, you saw these old pictures where people used to illustrate T-Rexes with their tails dragging on the ground. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make any sense. The, they, of course, had to have their their tails up in the air as a counterweight to the body so they could move. Yeah, I am also reminded of, uh, of kangaroos who have, uh, you know, uh, will, will engage in bipedal um, uh, gaits uh, and their tail is, is often utilized as a, as a third limb. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a whole bunch that we could do there. I also have to say there's a whole episode we should probably record on just bipedal robots and the attempt to create yeah. functional bipedal robots and perhaps getting into the idea of why we want to do it as well. Because they've got to be like us. They've got to be like us. we got to create a mechanical man. Yes. So we'll, we'll in inevitably come back to that topic in a future episode. But for now, there you have it. Bipedalism, something we do, something other organisms do, something organisms have been doing on this planet for a very long time. And conceivably, there could be other bipeds out there in the universe doing their thing as well. Now, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, links out to our social media accounts, a, a, a store tab for our Tee Public store. You can find all sorts of cool designs, including the new uh, squirrel shirt that we have. This is the squirrels are not what they seem because they're not, if you remember our squirrel episode. Get that on a shirt or a sticker. It's a great way to support the show. And if you want to support the show in a way that doesn't cost you a dime, just simply rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. And don't forget about Invention, the Invention podcast, the new show that Joe and I have, uh, have put out, coming out every Monday about human techno history and the power of invention. Big thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can always email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.